there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. In Washington, D.C., ground was broken and construction began on the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. It was a bad month to be famous. Teresa Saldana was stabbed repeatedly by a stalker. Teddy Pendergrass was paralyzed in a car accident. And the Doobie Brothers broke up, damn it. On the other hand, T.J. Hooker premiered on network TV, so that's pretty much as good as TV ever got. And just to show you how different schedules were, the 54th Academy Awards weren't given out until March 29th that year. Man, it was a strange month of movies in March 1982. Hi, everybody. As always, I am Drew McWeenie, and welcome to 80s All Over. I'm joined by my co-host, Scott Weinberg, who's already laughing at me, so we're off to a good start. It's a good thing we got a master editor behind the scene, because you were like, these bleeds? Hi, I'm Drew McLeese. <laughs> I did. I, I managed to drunkenly stumble my way through that opening. Uh, he did sound a little tipsy. I'm the one who usually has the mumble mouth. But before we start, uh, I would like to, uh, of course, thank all our listeners. Thank all of our uh, subscribers in the Patreon page. Patron. I also just realized that we've done like 28 episodes, and I don't think that you or I, or specifically me, has ever like plugged anything else that we do. Anyway, you can read my stuff um, at Nerdist. At Thrillist, I also have a book on on Amazon. What else? I have a movie coming out next month. It's called Found Footage 3D. I co-host a podcast that you're listening to right now. Drew, what about you? Uh, you can find my work at pulpandpopcorn.com. There you can find my books that I've published about Film Nerd 2.0. Uh, you can find the magazine that I've been putting out. And uh, I've got more books going up there soon. That's also where you can find the 80s all over store, a great way for you to help support this show. There's something that you want to track down here on the show. Go through us, go to Amazon, pick it up there, and they throw a little coin our way. It doesn't add anything to your cost. It's a great way to show us a little bit of love. As Scott mentioned, we are on Patreon, and that is a chance for you to help financially support the creation of this show. We are completely independent. We don't have any advertising getting in the way of the entertainment here. Right now, you're the ones underwriting this five-year project, and we want to thank you for that. So if you would like to be part of that, please visit us at patreon.com backslash 80s all over. The main episodes will always be free for the regular listeners. You guys are under no obligation. It's just something we would love to have the support for. Yeah, no guilt trip or anything. I mean, I had ramen noodles for dinner tonight. No, totally cool. (laughs) 
right? Yo, Drew, how many shoes do your kids have? Uh, just one each. One each. I bought a pair and I split them. And the kids don't even wear the same size, ladies and gentlemen. I know. It's We just had to buy the, the middle, so nobody's happy. Uh, so, hey, real quick, um, I wanted to say on the January 1982 episode, I evidently pronounced Des Moines, Iowa, very, very wrong. It is Des Moines, as I know. I believe I was reading something and somehow just went on a brain fart and said Des Moines. And oh, my God, did you people let me know? I heard that. And, you know, I am not embarrassed to correct you on occasion. Drew has a few like vocal tics. For example, the word H-A-L-F. He will pronounce the L in half and say half. Half. <laughs> when he said Des Moines, I thought, oh, maybe that's like uh, local to where he grew up. It. It's wrong, Drew. Yes, I've been informed that it's deeply, deeply wrong. So I'd like to say, officially on the record, I love you, Des Moines, Iowa. However, on the other hand, blow me Louisville. So on that note, let's get started, man. Uh, this first film, it's interesting because there, there was a moment where fantasy started to change on film. And I think part of it is technology gave us some freedom to finally do some things we couldn't do before. And also just people started taking the genre more seriously for the longest time fantasy and specifically like sword and sorcery type fantasy was one of the most disrespected disreputable garbage genres that existed it was either kids movies like the great harryhausen fantasies or it was really tna laden kitschy stuff on that note let's talk about sorceress out of an age undreamed of an age of swords and sorcery an age of demons, dragons, witches, comes the adventure of a sorcerer sworn to conquer the world. And mighty magical women warriors are given the power of sorcery and the fighting skills of the masters. Innocent twins seek revenge against the sorcerer and discover one must die. <laughs> Evil magic and a battle to control the entire known world. Swords and sorcery. Sorceress. 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 Drew, this movie is a big fat fucking mess. I love these crappy types of movies. We can thank probably Conan the Barbarian for this deluge of ultra cheap and i don't mean cheap as a knock but when your movie is terrible cheap doesn't help it's jack hill directing this movie i do not think of exploitation or genre movies as lesser i do not think of them as inherently bad or inherently less or inherently anything else i like exploitation and there are certain names that i think have done really really good work jack hill Certainly has. I like Switchblade Sisters a lot. I like Foxy Brown. I like some of his Women in Prison movies. I really, really like Spider Baby, which is fucking nuts. He is a guy who has done a lot of different things, has never really been easy to pigeonhole, and I think just worked. I think it was one of those guys who, if you offered him something, he'd do it. He'd give it a try. He'd work. Sorceress was written by Jim Wynorski. Now, the talent level disparity between Jack Hill and Jim Wynorski is not inconsiderable. And I know Jim. I've met Jim. I've gotten a chance to know Jim over many, many years. Jim is a guy who I think barely can get the words on the page. Thank you. I don't know. I don't know Jim Wynorski from Adam, and he's a horrible filmmaker. Please Horrible. 
almost dazzlingly horrible. I, the scripts all feel like they come from that Corman school of, yeah, well, we wrote that uh, on a napkin in three hours, and then we uh, went to the location and started shooting. And clearly the thing that they had going for them at the beginning of this is they hired twin blondes and decided that's twice the number of bare boobs we can get into a movie. These leads are probably the most interesting and likable thing about the entire film. Note, neither of them are sorceresses. Nary a sorceress to be found. And in that <laughs> regard, in that regard, it has a lot in common with William Friedkin's classic film, Sorcerer, a film that also has no sorcerer in it. If nothing else, I am a big fan of God Monster Vitan in this movie. Yeah. On the grand scale of these movies, the Conan ripoffs, let's just call them the Swords and Sandals and the Barbarians and Buxom Blondes, Dungeons and Dragons, all the ultra cheap ones. This might be one of the better ones. As crappy, terrible, low-budget fantasy, especially 80s fantasy goes, yes, Sorceress is on the list of the ones that are fun to watch. And especially, this is one of those where if you live in an area that has a good uh, repertory house and they program stuff like this and you get the chance to see this in a theater with people, um, this isn't a movie that people make fun of the whole way through. It's a movie that people genuinely have fun watching all the way through because it is just delirious and goofy and this one i do think the leads help they are both so charming that i even think it to some degree alleviates some of the leering perviness that is inherent to these movies they never allow themselves to become the butt of the sex joke i also would like to mention a very good supporting performance by the uh, battle beyond the star score <laughs> uh, very nice work recycling the Battle Beyond the Stars score, Mr. Corman. If you want to be a student of the uh, 1980s Sword and Sandals movies, uh, you will see a lot of junk, and this is one of the more watchable pieces of junk. And the last thing I'll say before we move on is if you're a fan of David Gordon Green's Your Highness, I strongly suspect that more than almost any other fantasy film from this era, this is the movie he's making fun of. There are direct parallels that seem not quite accidental to me. Ooh, that's going to be a fun project. Anybody out there with an eighth of weed and access to <laughs> Sorceress and Your Highness, check up on Drew's uh, hypothesis and get back to us on the uh, Twitter.com. Now, we move on from a frequently laughable action-adventure mess to a dour and depressing trip through addiction territory. Jill Clayburgh, she's dancing as fast as she can. Geraldine Page, coming to terms with death. Wish I knew if it's time to give in. Jill Clayburgh, trying to cope with life. Take a film. Take a value. I don't know how you make a film when you don't know the ending. I know the ending. From the heights of success to the depths of despair, two women struggle to survive. I'm dancing as fast as I can Monday at 8. There was a point where Jill Clayburgh was a major movie star, where she was, you know, box office. She was somebody who could get films funded. She was somebody who uh, studios were eager to work with. And uh, Barbara Gordon, who wrote this book based on her own addiction to Valium, managed to sell this to film. David Rabe, who is a fucking terrific playwright, one of my favorite playwrights, uh, he wrote Hurley Burley. He wrote the absolutely terrific script for Casualties of War, the Brian De Palma film. Uh, David Rabe did the adaptation. Also, Mr. Jill Kleber. I did not know that. I just think it's one of those things where her book 
it doesn't lend any new information to the conversation about addiction. No, this one to me felt like, hmm, well, alcoholism's been covered and sex addiction's been covered and drug addiction. Oh, uh, let's try. Uh, oh, this is a good book. About it's about Valium. I'm cynical about it because it feels cynical. When you covered these movies, there's three, four that we've covered already on the show. And it's like, who, man or male actor or female actor, who can we plug in to this addiction story, recovery story? Because that's the kind of stuff that the Oscar and the awards bodies want to see. This is from a very particular kind of addiction story, which is drug addiction is bad. Drug addiction happens, though. But when it happens to rich white people, holy shit. There's a stretch of this movie where as her addiction gets out of control, her husband, Nicole Williamson, King Arthur from Excalibur, essentially holds her hostage, kidnaps her, forces her to go cold turkey, ends up beating the shit out of her and tying her to a chair. And she only gets out of it because she yells to her friends when he's on the phone with them. And for like 15, 20 minutes, this turns into this weird, dark marriage drama. And then he's pow out of the movie. We never see him again. There's no conversation about what happened or how far it went or what his issues are or why he's controlling. It's very shallow. It's just these things. It feels like unlike Shoot the Moon, which we talked about a few weeks ago, which gives you these this tragedy in like vignette segments and they kind of build upon each other and, and leave a lasting impression. This literally just feels like seven moments from an unhappy woman's life. Look, this is pretty terrible. Okay. And when she gets to her doctor, Diane Weiss, they have a totally pat, phony relationship. It doesn't help that we've seen therapist and patient relationships really done well, especially in the last 15, 20 years of pop culture, where that writing has gotten better and that process has become less mysterious and you really can, can reveal character through there. This is all like greeting card bullshit stuff. We see the very clear and obvious trends in, say, sex comedies. And you and I are now seeing the very clear and obvious trends in slasher movies. We've also seen lots of stories, movies about divorce and how they rise and fall. Here comes this one was a big hit. This one got a lot of Oscars. And then right about now is when the unfortunate rich white person suffering for Oscar bait. But it's fading out a little bit right now. Yeah, and I'm this dancing. is one of those cycles. There are two things that I do like and that I thought were worth pointing out. I know. Can I guess what one is? Okay. One is the fact that the film stars, as you mentioned, not only Sir Nicole Williamson and Diane Wiest, but also Geraldine Page, Joe Pesci, Ellen Green, Richard Mazur. This has a great cast. Well, the young Ellen Green thing kind of knocked me for loop because I really didn't twig into her existence until Little Shop of Horrors. And, you know, that experience with Little Shop is she starts speaking. You're like, wow, what planet is she from? She starts singing and you say, oh, my God, can I move there? I had not seen a lot or I guess I have seen some of her early work, but didn't remember it or I hadn't really noted it. So it's interesting watching her pop up and really seeing her as a younger actor and that character that she so fully kind of developed and embraced down the road. Not really in place yet. And yes, when you mentioned the supporting cast, my favorite thing about this movie is that when she goes into the mental hospital for alcohol rehab after the whole thing with her husband, she's in a uh, ward where two of the other patients are played by Joe Pesci and young Daniel Stern. So from now on, headcanon for me, this is the prequel to Home Alone where those guys met. And they started realizing that they had one thing in common. They really love to rob people's places and then fuck them up with water. And so it's part of their pathology. And that's why they ended up doing that. <laughs> Keep the change, you filthy animal. 
it's tough as a uh, as a character actor as you get older trying to figure out where you fit and the worst thing that can happen is when you get pushed out of the mainstream film into weird foreign cinema and exploitation cinema and you're doing work that you almost seem embarrassed by and that is definitely the case in this next film which i've got to imagine would have been a lifelong albatross for some of the cast if it were not basically impossible to find this movie for legal reasons. I am talking about the Italian film The Last Shark, better known as Great White. Port Harbor is a quiet, peaceful summer resort. But Port Harbor has been invaded by the ultimate predator, the Great White Shark. My shark ride has to be. The hell it is! There are bodies out there. There's more to come if we don't end this thing. It's coming right at us! Great White. The most terrifying motion picture of 1982. Great White. Rated PG. This is a film that actually played in theaters in 1982, which is why we're mentioning it on our podcast. And it played for, by most accounts, three to four weeks before Universal had it legally yanked from theaters because it was so blatant. And you think, Scott, Drew, there are so many ripoffs out there. How could one film possibly be yanked from theaters for such a thing? This producer, that's all he did. His stuff was, Grizzly was his first one, and Grizzly was, before Halloween, the biggest independent film of all time. And it was because it caught the wave right after Jaws, and people were like, giant animals eating people. Yes, I'm in. He did it again with Beyond the Door, which is an Italian ripoff of The Exorcist that's very similar, and managed to, get, to make some real coin with that. This was the first time he went after one, where he specifically targeted this movie. He wanted it because it is... Jaws and Jaws 2 stuck in a blender. It stars uh, Vic Morrow is the kind of a mashup of Quint and Brody. It has the most inept. I mean, this film was made in 1981, and it has special effects that look like 1949. It's an inflatable shark. I am almost sure that in most of the big shots where it's in the actual shot with the people, it's inflatable. Drew, am I mistaken, but is there not a moment in this film where a shark backs up and goes forward six or seven times to intentionally cause a rock slide to trap someone underwater in a cave? There's that. There's uh, the shark attacks a helicopter. Jaw on the floor at how inept it is. It is so bad. And so when he had this, when he saw this movie and he decided he could release it in America and it was going to he's going to do the same thing, he was going to rip off somebody else's ads and everything else. He spent more money on this than he'd ever spent on anything else. Almost four or five million dollars of his own personal money to open this movie. Great White was a giant release for the time. And that's why Universal went after it. He had lost sight of the fact that with the other films, he was kind of under the radar. He was moving town to town. He was basically staying ahead of them. And by the time they figured out what he was doing, he was done. So it's like what you're saying is like he was like a marijuana dealer who greedily expanded into hard drugs like crack and cocaine. And that's what got him caught. Or he was a guy that sold marijuana out of his apartment and then forgot what he was doing and opened a shop. And it's like, uh, buddy, no, you can't. I like, you know what? You can't ever just give me an analogy, Drew. You can't just <laughs> let me have a little satisfaction on this damn podcast where we're talking about Italian Jaws ripoffs that 2% of our listeners, all right, 4, 4% of our listeners have ever seen. 
For some reason, Jeremy Smith, many of you know him as Mr. Beaks of Ain't It Cool fame, is obsessed with this movie. And I think part of it is the fact that it got yanked so firmly from release. But here's the thing. For a movie that was taken out of circulation and supposedly is impossible to find right now, if you want to, you can go rent it on Amazon.com for three bucks and watch it. But, yo, but Drew, who's collecting that money? Who is collecting the three dollars for this movie? I have no idea because the guy who ran that company ended up putting most of his cash in a suitcase and disappearing to Mexico and leaving everybody else holding the bag when this movie went south. But my point is this film technically does not have a U.S. distributor. So if somebody on Amazon is charging you $3 for it, they should not be bringing in money on this. That You should steal it. You should watch it on YouTube, which is where I did. <laughs> uh, all right, so we move from... One horribly inept film that takes place around water to another really good film that takes place around water. Shut up about my segue. And here we're going to talk about Evil Under the Sun. Recently I went on holiday to the glamorous island retreat of the international socialite, Madame Daphne. I traded my thinking cap for a bathing cap and found myself knee deep in murder. Strangled. Alas, even in paradise, there is evil under the sun. Won't you join me there? Rated PG. I love this movie. James Mason is in it, therefore it's wonderful. Oh my God. James Mason, ladies and gentlemen, from Beyond the Grave has joined our podcast. Uh, this is one of my favorite of the Agatha Christie adaptations. Yeah, I was going to ask you because this is where we get into that. Drew is slightly older than me, and therefore there are some things that he would have maybe gotten into before me. And as a kid, an Agatha Christie mystery would have bored the living shit out of me. And I watched this a couple nights ago, and I had a ball. It's interesting because we're going to be talking about a movie at the end of this episode. Uh, that was heavily influenced by Sleuth. That was the moment where Anthony Schaefer like, became a superstar in theater. Uh, Sleuth was a mega hit when it opened, and the film adaptation was huge. He did the adaptation here of Agatha Christie's book, and it's very clever. It's well-structured. One of the things that I enjoy about this one is they give you all the pieces to solve the mystery ahead of time. Sometimes I, I think mystery movies cheat, and they'll keep information from you or they don't do a very good job of laying clues out and you end up behind the detective because you just couldn't have solved it. This is a movie where they lay it all out. And if you're paying attention and you're having fun with it, it's all there and you can definitely connect all the dots. You're right. It kind of just leads you in this direction and leads you in that direction. And it's it could be her. It's definitely her. Oh, wait a minute. No, it's him. Uh, uh It's him. <laughs> That's the thing is Hercule Poirot uh, played here by Peter Ustinov. And it's so funny that we watched uh, the Charlie Chan and the Curse of the Dragon Queen. And in that movie, I think he is he looks lost. He looks confused about what's going on. He has so much personality. He has it's so all much the little fussiness, all the little details of Poirot's behavior and the things that make him who he is. All of that is laid out. It's a really lovely performance for a moment, if we could. Yes. She passed away on Game of Thrones recently. Oh, Lana Tyrell. I would like to talk for just a moment about the performance in Evil Under the Sun by the luminous Diana Rigg. Oh my God, is she good in this movie, man. And what I love about her is when she was young on the Avengers, she took no shit. The image that she created, the person that she embodied in those things was so far removed from the sex symbols of the day. She did not allow herself to be defined by anybody else. Even in a role, she found a way to really take control of it. And I think young Diana Rigg was one thing as she got older and she really embraced the fact that she was aging and she could play those roles. She owned it. And in this movie in particular, 
she is so on fire and having so much fun. And the fact that she gets to spar with Maggie Smith, who is on fire and having fun, or Sylvia Miles, who is on fire and having fun. I, I like these movies because they're they're not dated because they're period pieces. So, you know, except for the fact that these are not necessarily today's actors, this film could have been shot yesterday. And I think Guy Hamilton as a filmmaker um, knows what the fun of this is, which is the sun and the location and the wealth. It's a very strange idea. It's not really a franchise because the rights would change hands and different companies would produce them and release them. And sometimes cast, they would borrow people from other things. Uh, Jane Birkin, who is in this as Christine Redfern, uh, one of the uh, guests at the hotel. Birkin is most well-known. She was married to Serge Gainsbourg, a, you know, giant French pop singer. It's kind of a chameleon. Like, she was a really hard person to pin down on film. And part of what they could do in a franchise like this is she's in one of the earlier Poirot films with Ustinov playing a totally different character, looks totally different, and they don't make anything of it. It's just that they liked an actor. They could bring him back, and if they liked a filmmaker, they'd work with him again. And it's a really weird you could there's about nine or ten of these movies that are loosely connected by the way they kind of play telephone from one to the other. And by the end, it's a really odd franchise overall. A lot of the Agatha Christie stories just feel like Friday the 13th movies with classier dialogue. And so that's why the plot has not even been brought up yet. The plot basically is a bunch of uh, colorfully obnoxious wealthy people gathered together in an isolated t area. This time it's a private island. In, I believe it's in the Mediterranean, and it's gorgeous, and it's a fascinating location. One of them meets an untimely demise. The rest of them all behave very oddly, so we suspect each and every one. And then slowly but surely, our illustrious Belgian detective figures out who did it or who done it. And it even has that scene that I love in movies like this where everybody gets gathered into a room and you go through everybody that it could be and why it's not before you reveal who it actually is. Christie was a beast for plotting. And one of the most fun things about this is as the plot drops into place and all the pieces are revealed, it's so much fun and so much work and such a crazy way to have pulled off a murder. But she makes it seem possible as ridiculous as it is. Speaking of ridiculous Let's just talk about Parasite. 3D. The movie fantasy of yesterday is now the terrifying film experience of the future. For technical reasons, the preview you are about to see is not three-dimensional. Be assured, Parasite is the most gripping and frightening movie you will ever see. And in 3D, you will be part of the terror. You are about to witness the future. Be warned. It is a shocking sight. 3D, the ultimate sensation of visual art, now creates the newest, most terrifying form of fear, Parasite. That thing on your stomach. A new strain of Parasite. When it reproduces, it will cast millions of microscopic spores into the air. Just move your legs towards me real slow. Real slow. Experience the living, breathing, terrifying vision of modern 3D. Parasite. You have only seen the preview. In 3D, you will live the film. Parasite. The first futuristic monster movie in 3D. Parasite. Boy, oh boy, is Parasite a post-apocalyptic piece of poop. I have a real fondness for any movie that is set in the future when it was made that is now our past. 
I love movies that begin 1992, a nuclear war ends the world. And you're like, nah, uh, <laughs> you know what I kind of respect about this movie is that it does take place in like one of those Mad Max ripoff universes, but it's not an action film. No, not not remotely. Th- and, that, uh, that to me is about where the interesting stuff ends. And you won't find a much bigger, like loyal fan of cheesy B horror movies. And every single time in my life that I've tried to watch this movie by like 20 minutes, I just tune out. It's about a guy who uh, has a horrible parasite in his belly, and uh, he's trying to get across a desert wasteland, and uh, horrible p- gangs of punks are not making that easy. And the guy who has it in him, he's the doctor who's created it, and he's taking it because he feels like the people that he's working for are going to do something terrible. And uh, it is such a ridiculous movie. The cast in this thing, you've got Sherry Curry from The Runaways, who... I find really distracting in movies. Something like Fox's works for me because that is a scene that she feels like she fits in. Here, it feels like you took Sherry Curry from The Runaways and put her in a silly post-apocalyptic movie. Uh, you got Tom Villard, who, if you know him, you know him as the goofy guy from a bunch of stuff. And, of course, you've got young Demi Moore in the movie. It's an early film from Charles Band, who would, of course, produce and direct several entertaining uh, uh, B-movies. That's where the problems begin, because I'm not a big Charles Band fan. Well, no, I'm talking about, like, it's almost like trauma. There's a lot of trauma films that I just plain old have no interest in, but... To be fair, there are two or three that I thought did land on some creativity and some some interesting idea. I like Tromeo and Juliet. I like Toxic Avenger. Like Troma, Band has created his own thing. And this is definitely of a piece. Like he if nothing else, you have to say that Charles Band has an aesthetic that has kind of established itself over time and he's made a ton of that stuff. Yeah. And Parasite is one of the films that was um what would you say it was one of the earliest to use like what you call air bladder effects, which is when you would you know have like be able to have someone's face and then a big bubble would grow under their ch- over their cheek. You and then learn bubble very and bubble. quickly what too much is with that stuff. We've talked about American Werewolf and the Howling, and nobody understood that to us it wasn't the bladder effects that were interesting. It was the fact that they made you feel what it might feel like to become a werewolf and how physical and strange and and traumatic that would be. And what they, I think, took from that is kids love bladder effects. Let's have more bladder effects and things. Right. Oh, man. Look at this guy's forehead explode. Plop. Look at that. It got real big. And you're like, but that's not what I was into. Like, yo, can we get a little vanilla pudding up in that? Instead of putting air in that bladder, let's put vanilla pudding. And then, oh, my God, Oscar time. Parasite. Not good. Stan Winston credited. It's Drew. Respond. Uh, you would not look at this and go, oh, of course, I see Stan Winston's talent here. Uh, speaking of bladder effects and people who seem to know no limits in the use of them, this next movie, when this came out, I was 12 and I was already a big Fangoria reader. There were certain times where I would read an article about a film and I would see some of the makeup from the film and I would read details of this plot and I would decide, I don't think I want to see that. It had kind of that opposite effect of instead of hyping me up for a movie, these articles would turn me off to a film. And whatever it was that Fangoria printed, I haven't even gone back to read the article, but whatever it was that they printed is their preview of The Beast Within. I read it, and I looked at the photos, and I went, nope, not for me. Warning. This preview cannot show all of the terrifying and grotesque transformation sequences from the last 30 minutes of The Beast Within. The filmmakers strongly suggest that those who may be shocked by this unique, horrifying movie use caution when seeing the film. There's 
something inside of Michael. I've never seen anything like it before. Something that's been waiting, watching, and growing. Michael? Something evil. I know you're in here. And whatever it is, it is ready to be released. I came back for them, all of them. And now no one, no one is safe. You have been warned. You are dared to remain calm during the horrifying final 30 minutes of The Beast Within. Even you may not survive. You have been warned. It opens with a woman being raped by a monster. And let's be clear. It's an awful, awful scene that goes on for way too long. The, the prologue of the film, couple in the car, car breaks down, husband has to go back to the gas station, woman stupidly gets out of the car, hears a noise, it's a giant slimy monster, and it rapes her. This is just ugly. It's literally just a very ugly scene. Like, I thought, having never seen it before, I thought that was going to be the precursor, and then the whole movie would be something else. No, literally everything else in the movie hinges on that. So that is the point of the film, is she's raped by a monster, and then you jump to 17 years later, and her son is in a hospital because something's wrong with him. And clearly, he's not her husband's son. He is the son of the monster, and he's starting to change into a monster. And the husband is Ronnie Cox, too. I think I might go out on a limb here and say... One of the dumbest monsters I've ever heard of in a movie. I'm not sure if he's supposed to be a giant cicada monster, although they use the sound of a locust and they constantly refer to cicadas, or if he is the reincarnation of a dead asshole. They never quite land on one or the other. So my feeling is he's a cicada who is a reincarnation of a dead asshole. And it makes no sense. The movie has one of the most abrupt endings you'll ever see. It looks like they're walking into act three and the movie ends. The The kill scene, I mean, there are, I suppose, some really fun goopy effects, some good bladder goop sloppy effects. It's got R.G. Armstrong. It's got L.Q. Jones. It's got, you know, actors with letters for names. That's something. It's an early screenplay by Tom Holland, who, of course, would go on to write and direct Child's Play, Fright Night, and, and many good genre films. Many. It really does feel like his idea here was to combine every type of horror. It's got a little bit of slasher. It's got a little bit of monster. It's got some nasty body horror. It does feel like a guy who's trying to rope in all these cool little uh, memories and touchstones from horror films that he loves. But the director, Philippe Mora, is so inept. It's just the film is just so scattershot and no energy. I can't say enough bad about Philippe Mora. I, and I've given that guy many, many tries with many, many different films. And he is Uwe Boll incompetent. He barely knows one end of the camera from the other, much less staging or acting or. The less said about Philippe Mora until we get to at least Howling 2, the better. This is one of those movies that when you talk about the bladder effects, there is a sequence towards the end of this film where the kid finally starts to transform in a hospital because the director is so incompetent. The staging seems to be all right. We're going to do about 10 minutes now of bladder effects. Everybody stand around like a dummy. Don't move. Don't do anything that might actually impact anything. Just stand here for 10 minutes of bladder effects. Right. I apologize in advance, but if you're ever sitting in a hospital bed, your skin peels off and a giant cricket monster starts climbing out. I'm not just going to stand there and watch. I'm a vapor trail down the hallway. I'm gone. If you don't leave a hole in the wall that's in the shape of Scott Weinberg, I'll be disappointed. I will be home in front of my Xbox before the mucus from your desiccated flesh has rotted away. 
this movie sucks. There we go. Let's move on to a film that also kind of sucks, but in a much different way. Oddly enough, it's only the 17th film on 80s All Over to be written by Neil Simon. It's called I Ought to Be in Pictures. Only two things separated Libby Tucker from her father, 3,000 miles and 16 years. I don't even know how she found me. It took him 20 years to find Eichmann. You must be pretty strong come all the way from New York with a 200-pound chip on your shoulder. Well, you ought to know you're the one who dumped it there. Walter Matthau, Anne Margaret, Dinah Manoff. You are the uniquest kid I ever met. Neil Simon's I Ought to Be in Pictures, rated PG. Can you believe this is from the director of Pennies for Heaven? No, it feels like he just said, oh my God, Pennies from Heaven, that was dark. Give me the most unrealistic, bubblegum, upbeat. It's hard to like dislike upbeat and uh, Simon, Neil Simon, but man, when he was on autopilot, it's an ugly thing. Libby Tucker hitchhiked from Brooklyn to take Hollywood by storm and her father by surprise. And Drew can't give less of a shit. Dinah Maynoff, who played the role on stage, I believe, uh, is, is a uh, runaway who goes to L.A. to uh, live with her runaway father, played by Walter Matthau. And it's their fractious relationship, everybody. He doesn't know how to deal with her. And she talks like a 40-year-old screenwriter. What's going to happen? You know what her problem is? She's plucky. And you know what? I hate plucky. And I hate the way she plays plucky. It is an annoying performance from moment one. It's the kind of performance where the whole thing feels like it's being shouted at you. Shouted, I say. To the back of the theater, I say. Shouted. And sometimes with Neil Simon, it feels like every single word of dialogue has been ultra polished. Somebody couldn't just say, thanks for the birthday card. Somebody has to, like, say, the birthday card. The one I received today is online, and you were there with that card in hand, Drew. That card saved my life and marriage, Drew. Thank you for that birthday card. Oscar scene. I really didn't like anything about this movie, and it is rare that I see a Walter Matthau performance where I just don't like anything. It's just got no energy. It's got nothing new or interesting to say. It is genuinely one of those programmers that was part of a deal that they had at the studio this with Ray Stark and Neil Simon to produce every goddamn word that fell out of his typewriter and should be forgotten literally should be forgotten it's just pointless moving on from one terrible comedy to a slightly different type of terrible comedy Drew what do we got no no I want you to describe this one I want you to tell me what you think the the introduction and description of the beach girls should be you just did it. God darn it. Yeah, I gotcha. Uncle Carl never expected to come home to a surprise party. But the biggest surprise of all is that he wasn't even invited. I have neighbors here. A position in the community. I just can't allow this. Relax, Uncle Carl. You're so tight. Oh, my. It began with his niece and her two friends. Let's have a party. And it turned a house on Malibu Beach into a Pacific party paradise. Crown International Pictures presents the hottest thing to hit the sand since the sun, the Beach Girls. That was great. This is as mindless and as puerile and as stupid and as badly written as the five dozen teenage sex comedies that were to come. But one thing that dawned on me halfway through this movie that made me like it slightly more it's about the girls 
I actually, out of the, uh, let's say, okay, I ought to be in pictures, Beast Within, Parasite, those three that just came before this, I, I think the Beach Girls is better than all three of those. I concur. And I don't even like it very much, but I concur. It's sincere about what it is. It's not trying to be anything else. And it's appealingly cast in that they are cute girls. They are having a good time. It feels playful and goofy and silly, but it doesn't feel smarmy. It's the difference between that and like most of the sex comedies that open with three sweaty assholes who are like, well, gotta get laid. Well, it's the difference between little darlings and some of the some of the I've got to lose my virginity movies. There is something inherent about when you switch that perspective, it becomes less gross to some degree. And Beach Girls, I ain't mad at you. Hey, Beach Girls, you know what? You were written by the guy who would go on to write Courage Under Fire and Mr. Holland's Opus. That's cool. <laughs> Everybody's okay. got to get started somewhere. Let me see it. I have any uh, dated sexual politics, gay panic, tacky racial stereotypes, and cheap, chintzy writing, but not entirely painful. There we go, ladies and gentlemen. Put that one on the poster, folks. And now we move on from the Beach Girls to a man who has passed away. The brilliant Richard Pryor, live on the Sunset Strip. Richard Pryor talks fire live on the Sunset Strip. Fire is inspirational. They should use it in the Olympics. Because I did the 100-yard dash in 4-3. When you're on fire and running down the street, people will get out of your way. The Funniest Man in America is back. Rated R. Starting Friday at a theater near you. I saw Richard live once. It was late, late, late in things. and The MS was pretty bad by that point. But it was at the comedy store, and we wanted to go see him because it was the comedy store, for God's sake. And it's Richard Pryor. Yeah. And so they came out, and they actually, they, he had somebody who helped him up on stage. They sat him on a stool, and I was about five feet from Richard during the entire performance. But my favorite moment, the rocking starts to get a little more pronounced. He starts to move sideways. It's clear if it keeps going, he's coming off the stool. So he's looking at us while he's talking. And finally, right before he goes off the stool, he goes, I think I'm going. And then his guy came running in from the other stage, grabbed him, put him back on the stool and then took off again. And then Richard just kept doing his bit. But the the look he gave us for a moment as he thought he was going down was this really human, frail moment. It's it's one thing to joke about brave topics, to, to, to attack racism or sexism or very personal topics. But for a, a guy who was at the top of his game and then became like a punchline for a little while, and that's now dissipated, but for a while, it was a punchline, what Richard Pryor did to himself a, a, a while under the influence of drugs, that he set himself on fire. First, it was tragic. Then it was, you know, a joke for a while. And then he reclaims it in this film. This movie opens with some standard but very insightful, very funny Richard Pryor material. And then slowly, about halfway through, he starts to get into the details of what happened to him. And he knows that his fans want to hear this. He knows that you can't avoid something that has been so infamous, something that's been covered everywhere. And he takes back every possible chance that he will ever be ridiculed for that ever again. After you see this concert, you would never make a joke about what happened to Richard Pryor after seeing this show. It's it's his best stand-up. Live in concert from 79 is good, and, and here and now from 83 is... But this, to me, is sterling vintage Richard Pryor. 
I am a massive Richard fan, and it all has to do with his stand-up. I think on film, and we talked about this on the show, I think he was largely wasted, and I think it's a little disgraceful, some of the movies that are Richard Pryor movies. But the stand-up is where it's very pure, and I think live in concert for me is funnier than this, but I think this is the moment where he is dealing most directly with his celebrity, and perhaps most honestly, because I think Richard had a hard time telling the truth about some things and couldn't help but tell the truth about other things. That mix is part of what makes him so interesting, because the things he he was reluctant to be honest about, I think they were the things that scared him the most. And I think they were the things that he really had a hard time in his personal life dealing with. So, of course, on stage, he's going to avoid them and dance and weave around them. And even his description of the, the drug accident here, it is fascinating to me the way he takes the reality and then bends it into comedy and into the routine that he plays. It's a really strong, strong, interesting piece. But throughout this entire film there are pieces that i think are for anybody that's interested in richard there are legendary pieces for me the highlight here is his description of his trip to africa and his political awakening on the use of that word but richard deals more directly with the word here than he ever has at any point in his career and you've got to remember he had album titles where that word was a part of it on the rack in the store there it is and it was confrontational on purpose and when he wrote blazing saddles he did not shy away from the use of that word specifically because he knew how uncomfortable it made people and what that conversation would be like and what the comic value of some of those lines are uh, blazing saddles is a brilliant deconstruction of the use of that word but still politically I don't think he got it until the trip to Africa that he talks about in this film. These things, these concert films still come out, but given at, at what we have on HBO, on Netflix, on YouTube, the market for comedy concert films is really, I mean, I know uh, Kevin Hart had a huge one a few years ago, but they're really not that common. And to me, I, I look at films like this and Eddie Murphy Raw, and, and I think, God, that people would go and drop five bucks not to see one of your stories, but they would just go to drop five bucks to see your, your stand-up. That is a, such a testament to these comedians that I'll always be impressed by that. Well, and I think before there was the glut, you know, the late, the mid-80s to early 90s glut of stand-up comedy uh, kind of killed that market because there was just too much of it. What made these special was you felt like you were checking in at certain points in an artist's career. So if you are a fan of Richard Pryor and you look at live in concert and you look at this one and you look at here and now, those are three totally different points in who Richard was. And each of them feels like you can check in and get a sense of who he was at that moment. This one, I agree with you. I think it's it's essential if you want to understand Richard. There is a great Shout Factory box that came out a few years ago. It is all of his studio albums. It is everything he released through Warner Brothers. And it is all three of the concert films on DVD. I cannot recommend it highly enough if you're a fan of Richard Pryor. And yes, this is a key piece of who he was on film. Then we move to a, a very dark, fascinating German film that touches on some topics that we've covered before. The role of the actor in a fascist society. Uh, this is Mephisto, hailed worldwide as an extraordinary cinematic event. The London Times calls it a majestic, supremely intelligent film. Ingmar Bergman says Mephisto is an impassioned work of art. Never before have I liked a film more than the book. Rex Reed finds Mephisto riveting, complex, one of the New York Film Festival's most controversial events. And the London Standard salutes the great actor Klaus Maria Brandauer for one of the finest pieces of acting ever to come out of Europe. Mephisto, 
Finally, the story can be told. It's interesting because I do think this belongs on the shelf with Last Metro and with Das Boot in terms of offering us German perspectives on a history that they were still grappling with very actively in the early 80s. You're only talking uh, 40 years later. This is still a live, living, active history that they are contending with. And these were not easy films, I would imagine, to even conceive of, much less to make. Very challenging film. Klaus Maria Brandauer plays, in his mind, the world's greatest actor, uh, a, a man who is absolutely fascinating in his ego, his appetites, and his talent. It's his rise uh, to become uh, Nazi Germany's uh, premier actor. You watch this entire epic. Does that mask ever drop? Do we ever see the acknowledgement from this man that the system that he's in, does it ever dawn on him? That the system that he's climbing up is so vile and so evil. And then the question of maybe he does, but he's just such a damn good actor, we can't see it. And that's what this movie is about. It's fascinating. There's also quite a bit of material here about how everyone was acting, how the Nazis, there was this this fetishization and this role that they were playing. And I think a lot of it was and this is not unfair, considering they had the uniforms designed and they were everything was about aesthetics with the Nazi party. And so there is this sense that they are being seduced, not just by the ideology, but by the surfaces, by the fact that they all get to wear this stuff and they all get to look like this and they all get to play these parts. It's and creepy to think that thousands and thousands of grown men would f fall for that as part of the gimmick. It's and I think, that, you know, obviously there is some very on the nose thematic work going on here. The role that he plays that is his most sort of celebrated role in the film is uh, Mephistopheles, the devil. And there is a production of Faust. He's constantly in this makeup and in this character, and there's there is a feeling that this role is the slip off of the mask, not the not the wearing of the mask, and that that question is raised throughout the film. Does playing a part give you permission to be more of who you are? I had never seen this film prior to last week, and uh, I had already I knew the cover very well, and I knew who was in it, but it uh, it grabbed me pretty quick. It's it's a fascinating movie. I think Paul Thomas Anderson might be a fan just based on the last shot of this film. This movie has cast a very big shadow in terms of other filmmakers, and I, it is not an easy film to track down. It's not, it's not a film that is readily available at the moment, but it is one that I, I really wish had a higher profile, and I think it is an incredibly valuable conversation to have right now. And now we're going to talk about a bizarre documentary that's very scary called The Atomic Cafe. Drew? I got a story for you about the Atomic Cafe. How many people do you know have a story about the Atomic Cafe? Oh, if I had a dollar for every one of them, I'd have a dollar. I uh, had the, uh, it was what we called a Thorn EMI clamshell, which was one of those hard, rigid clamshells. And the cover was like, uh, just a, it looked like a diner and it was under a, a, a gray sky. And I thought it was a film like Strange Behavior, like a, a throwback to 1950s uh, monster and, and thriller movies. It's not at all. I didn't actually see this until years later, and it was because the co-director of this was Michael Moore's co-director on Roger and Me, Kevin Rafferty, and that led me back to it. And I realized afterwards that I must have seen a piece of it somewhere because this was one of the first documentaries to ever really get its hands on all of the footage of the atomic bomb tests from the 50s and the 40s. So this is 
a compilation of propaganda films that were given to the public to reassure them about how to live in a, the atomic age. It's a collection of footage of the actual atom bomb test. It's historical footage, news footage. It is a fascinating sort of montage that gives you a sense of how crazy it must have felt to live at the dawn of this moment where we realized we could destroy the world. Again, if you think America doesn't do their own propaganda, check this film out. This is where we got stuff like duck and cover and a lot of the cliches about like where how to deal with if an atomic bomb goes off in your neighborhood, what you should do. We're all watching this in 1990, in 2000, and now 2017 saying, if an atomic bomb lands in your neighborhood, you do one thing, kiss your ass goodbye. That's it. This was just to L.A. fears. That's all it was. I hope people understand that Duck and Cover is still done. That Duck and Cover has never gone away. It's just it's changed into something else that they tell you that's meant to make you feel better about things, but that has no real function. And to me, the Atomic Cafe is a really interesting crystallization of how little they told us at the time and how horrible the secret they're keeping was. Now, I'm going to introduce this next one because this is a film that is near and dear to my heart. I cannot believe, looking at it now, that not only was this a major studio release in 1982, but that my parents were 100% okay with sharing it with me and watching it with me repeatedly because this is as progressive and as in its way groundbreaking a piece about sexual politics as I think any studio released this year. And this is a year where this conversation was absolutely happening in movie after movie. We talked last month about personal best and making love. We're going to talk about the world according to Garp and Tootsie and other films later this year. But as far as I'm concerned, pound for pound, joke for joke, line for line, performance for performance, none of those films stand up quite as tall as Victor Victoria. Is this woman really a man pretending to be a woman? Or is this woman really a woman pretending to be a man pretending to be a woman? And why is this man, who is all man, in love with this man? Unless he knows that this man is really a woman pretending to be a man pretending to be a woman. I don't care if you are a man. Blake Edwards' Victor Victoria. The disguised surprise comedy hit of the year. Rated PG. I think this is such a terrific piece of entertainment, especially coming off of SOB. Drew, I was going to say that SOB was almost like somebody like vomiting so that they could eat something beautiful. <laughs> like, you know, like I have to get this out before I can do something good. And am I wrong? Or is Victor Victoria like the best case scenario of one from the heart? Well, it's it's enormously artificial. It's everything is on a stage or on a set. It's clearly an old fashioned movie. And I, it was more pronounced, I think, in the 80s for me. I have a real fetish for wide, wide, wide screen photography. I like two, three, five to one or wider. If you can go, there's a three to one aspect ratio shooting that. If you can shoot through a mail slot shooting that. Blake Edwards adores it. And one of my favorite things about him as a director is that he, whether it's the Pink Panther movies and the way he would use the frame there or this film and the way he stages musical numbers in it, there is not a square inch of that scope frame that Edwards doesn't have nailed down in terms of what he's yeah, doing. I, and I'm not going to uh, rain on your uh, parade here in any way, shape or form because SOB was a, a, a pretty funny, but kind of a nasty movie. And for the most part, Blake Edwards' 1980s output would be very, very dire. I think Victor Victoria is one of his most confident, funny, 
challenging films. Well, it's set at a point in Parisian sort of nightclub culture where there were gay clubs and there were cross-dressing clubs and it, it was there was a certain level of acceptability to that kind of performance. Julie Andrews plays a singer who cannot get hired, no matter how good her voice is, because she just doesn't have any sort of pop or wow. And so she ends up meeting this guy, Toddy, who is a drag performer in his own right, who is sort of aging out of it. He can't get the bookings he used to get, and he isn't treated the way he, he used to be treated. And he sees in her and hears her voice this potential, and they come up with this idea that she is going to become a man who is also going to be a great cross-dressing performer, allowing her then to become this beautiful feminine icon. She's going to pretend to be a man at all times. And then she's going to perform as a female impersonator. This was made by somebody who clearly knows people uh, in this realm, okay? Blake Edwards was clearly a very gay-friendly and very trans-friendly person because it feels very affectionate. You can tell that clearly this is this is a world that, yes, Blake was comfortable in. And I'm sure this is because as he and Julie Andrews worked in the industry for so many years, there are so many of their friends who were openly gay and that and they had they were progressive at a time where you weren't publicly progressive. But a film like this lays everything out on the table. And there are two relationships in this movie that I find fascinating. There's the James Garner relationship with Julie Andrews. He plays a uh, out of town gangster who comes to Paris, sees her perform and becomes obsessed with her her slash him and isn't sure what he's feeling and even though blake says he chickened out and there there's interviews later where he says that he didn't do this the right way there's a point where james garner clearly makes the decision whoever this is i'm interested and i'm in and it is not about gender for him and it is not about what anybody else thinks and that moment is I felt kind of landmark when I saw it in 1982. It felt like a big moment in pop culture because it's James Garner. It's Rockford, for God's sake. And the fact that, that it's not preachy and it's not pedantic, it all comes across in song and in comedy and in character. Robert Preston is so charming. Look, Robert Preston, we talked about how good he was in SOB as the bitchy doctor, and he got every great line in that film. They're all his. As Toddy in this film, he destroys from the opening moment. And I adore the relationship that develops between him and Alex Karras. And I think Alex Karras, being a former football player who had been cast as traditional, he was big and he was scary and he was Mongo and Blazing Saddles, and they always leaned into that. For Alex Karras to play the moments in this movie where you realize gradually, because it's never a big reveal, but gradually you realize that this bodyguard to this tough gangster feels emboldened by the fact that his boss is making these choices and he lets his guard down and reveals that he is also gay. It is a beautiful subplot that plays out. And and then it's so funny because then when he and Robert Preston are in bed, it's all hilarious and adorable and matter of fact, and there's no big deal about it. And so right on the money in terms of how they play that stuff. We have not mentioned maybe one of the biggest scene stealers of the entire film in, in probably her best performance ever. She's great. She's so great. I know what you're going to say, and she's awesome. Leslie Ann Warren is hilarious. She's the only one who really gets to vamp it up as a woman being a woman, and boy, does she do it. <laughs> and it is a throw every single tool you have at it as an actor performance. That final musical number with Robert Preston is one of the great highlights of Blake Edwards' career. It's one of the great highlights of Robert Preston's career. And when you watch it, they shot it in one take. 
And when you see Robert Preston at the end of that scene, that sweat and that out of breath and that he's laughing, the cast around him is laughing. It is one of those moments that I literally the hair on the arm on my arm just stood up talking about it. It's so terrific for a moment there. You know, cinema feels like theater. There's moments in Victor Victoria that really feel like the energy of a stage play. And I can't imagine that Mr. Edwards, rest in peace, would take that as anything but a huge compliment. And then we have a movie that uh, I thought was fun for a while. And then I revisited it. And then I took a long shower. It's called Porky's. In our commercial for the new motion picture comedy Porky's, we can only show you the outside of Porky's because what happens inside is not to be believed. We can only show you this much of the locker room scene. This much of the cabin scene. But we can tell you when you see Porky's, you'll be seeing the funniest movie about growing up ever made. Porky's. You too will be back for a second look. Rated R starts Friday, March 19th at a selected theater near you. Drew, let's play this. I am your uh, son at uh, 12 years old, and you are you. Ready? <clears throat> Dad, I just watched Porky's. Is that what sex is like for real? Thank God, no. I, he, I, first of all, what's very weird about this is this is a movie that Bob Clark, the uh, writer-director of the film, uh, made in Canada, and it came out in Canada first and was a hit there. And 20th Century Fox picked it up, and they had some idea what they had because they'd seen what was happening with Canadian audiences, and they had a good idea that it was going to be a big commercial film for them. So they did several weeks of preview screenings where for three or four weeks before it opened, they had it on a Saturday night. You could pay to see something else, and then you get to see Porky's. And they were like, be the first to see it before anybody ruins it for you. And they built everything around that shower scene. Even the poster is built around the shower scene, which is a sex crime. Just a sex crime. It's not charming. It's not funny. It's not witty. It's a sex crime that is committed on film. This movie, it's maybe the first one where we're going to get into a thing that is happening to me as I'm rewatching a lot of these films. There is a cultural touchstone. There is an archetype that was omnipresent for a lot of the 80s. And it is the white guy who enters a movie talking a mile a minute and super full of confidence and bouncing off the walls with energy and is the center of the film. In this movie, it's Pee-wee. I am learning that I hate that archetype. Michael Keaton knows his career to that archetype. Tom Hanks knows his career to that archetype. There's a lot of guys who played that in the 80s, and we'll talk about those performances when we get to them. In this one, it is Dan Monahan, and from the moment he starts talking about sex in this film, he is grotesque. He is an awful, terrible little human being. I think it is interesting because our pop culture image of 1950s teenagers is so over-scrubbed and so falsely innocent that it is kind of neat to see a 50s set sex comedy where it says, yes, you know what? Teens in the 50s were just as gross as they are today. Don't believe everything Norman Rockwell told you about the 1950s. That in another film could be m much more effective, but this is literally just leering and groping and sweating. It's not funny. There's one thing about this film that I find admirable, which is... I don't think Bob Clark has a terrible heart. I think he was trying to make something that was sincerely a memory piece and that he was going back and, and talking about his sort of memory of the time. And I do think what you were talking about, the notion that it deflates the notion of um, the 50s being squeaky clean and ultra pure. I think that was a big part of the impetus for this idea. 
There's also a subplot in this that is about the way racism is learned and passed on and how you can break that cycle if you actually try. And that's not insincere material. I think it is, though. I think this is not the film. I think he realized he was making something so puerile and so tacky that he had to throw in some preachy social issues. And he does it again in part two, even worse. But see, I think that's Bob Clark. Yeah, I think that's him. I think that is the balancing act that is Bob Clark. I do believe it's sincere on his part. I just don't think he's a great writer-director, and I think that is ultimately the limitation of Bob Clark. I think A Christmas Story, which is revered in our culture, is an accident, and it is based largely on the fact that it is the best piece of writing he has ever touched. I would say it's an aberration, not an accident. Bob Clark has done some good films. Eh, eh, He's okay, but I think his limitations are front and center in Porky's and it is that push and pull between the sincere and the sweet and the I can't resist going for the grossest or the biggest or the loudest or the most vulgar version of this moment what is the what are the biggest laughs in this movie it's either Pee Wee running down the street naked and the cops stopping him so they can have a conversation with him and there's a few scenes that in the theater played like gangbusters and here's the thing I saw this at 12 and I saw it because I went when they were doing those preview screenings and the word hadn't gotten out yet as to what it actually was, I had read just enough to know that if I didn't see it right then, I was never going to see it. Here's what I don't get, Drew. What is the punchline of a joke about a gym teacher having sex with a woman and she starts howling like a wolf and he he sticks a jock strap in her mouth? Here's where they cheat. They cheat by having that other teacher, the other coach who's laughing so hard. And it's the it's the Carol Burnett school of comedy where if Harvey Corman and Tim Conway start laughing, it doesn't even matter if there's a joke. You're going to start laughing because they're laughing and you're going to fall into it. And that scene with Miss Ballbricker where they're all in the office and they're falling out of their chairs behind her is not a funny scene except because they're goosing it with a laugh track. And it's an on-screen laugh track. It's a cheat. In that scene that you're talking about with Lassie, you're talking about the scene where there is no punchline and poor Kim Cattrall, uh, just a thankless, terrible part where she's an ugly punchline to a joke. It really feels like she's geared up to be funny and sexy and maybe even a little bit dirty. And then it's just embarrassing. I do think it reveals the, the very real limitations of Bob Clark's talent. And for a movie that has equal opportunity nudity, it just it doesn't seem to have an equal opportunity attitude because the heroes are all these leering guys and the women are either harridans or bitches. When we get to part two, we're going to talk about what they did with Wendy Williams in the sequel because clearly they had some regrets after they made the first film. And it's interesting that they tried to change some things because they realized maybe how mean some of this film is. If you have fond memories of Porky's and you think it's hilarious, great. Our advice, keep it that way. Don't watch it again. And I'm not looking forward to visiting Porky's 2 and Porky's Revenge again. I will defend Bob Clark, but fuck this trilogy. Let's move on to our final film, which is the pick of the month, and it's absolutely fantastic. We want you to pause the podcast and watch this film before you even finish the episode. Drew, what's it called? Death Trap. It's not a game. For Michael Caine, Christopher Reeve, and Diane Cannon, it's a wickedly funny who'll do it. Ira Levin's Death Trap, rated PG, starts Friday, March 19th. Check newspapers for a theater near you. Drew, I saw this movie as a kid. I remember very distinctly. I had no interest in seeing it, and I really liked it. Forgot everything about it, except, you know, obviously the cast and that it's a cool mystery. 
I watched it again about a week ago. It will almost definitely make my top 10 of the year. Death Trap is one of the most entertaining movie mysteries I've ever seen. I really enjoy it, and I'm with you, except I think the last five minutes of it fall off a cliff. I think it hits a wall so hard it leaves a mark. But having said that, I think it's terrifically entertaining. And I think that it comes down to that cast. Michael Caine and Christopher Reeve obviously know what they're doing in this movie, and they both attack it. Yeah, Michael Caine plays a very successful playwright who has fallen on hard times. His last several plays have opened poorly, and he is desperate for a hit. He uh, gets a letter from a, an aspiring playwright as uh, played by Christopher Reeve, and, and he wants him to read his work, and Michael Caine is convinced that this screen, that this play is amazing, and he has this half-baked plan uh, along with his reluctant wife, Diane Cannon, that he's going to invite this young playwright to his isolated summer home and kill him and steal his play. This movie feels like it's 25 minutes long. Sidney Lumet uh, adapts Ira Levin's play. I I've heard from some fans on Twitter who said, I've seen the play and I've seen the movie, and it's one of the best movie adaptations from stage I've ever seen. Oh, it's very smart. You want to talk about Victor Victoria feeling like it's a proscenium stage and a very theatrical experience. Lumet worked overtime in this to try and make sure that you're very grounded in a theatrical space and uses space in a very particular way in it. And I would imagine that in a theater, this feels like you're leaning into the room where these guys are doing all this. And he manages to do that in the film. It's pretty impressive stuff as an adaptation. 90% of the film takes place in, in you know, one house, uh, basically two rooms. Lumet is such a great director. He just never lets your eye uh, settle on the set for too long before he cuts somewhere else. And it's just a lot of fun. Uh, there is a revelation that arrives halfway through. And I'm, Drew and I just had a seven minute debate on how much we're going to divulge. I'll just say this. I find at the time, Christopher Reeve took a lot of shit for this movie. And then there were some there were some people that legitimately thought he damaged his career, that it was a really bad choice. I look at this performance with the remove of, you know, I'm not invested in whether or not he plays Superman again after this. I just look at it as a performance. And I think what's clear is that Reeve is at his best when he's playing characters who are not who they look like on the surface, whether it is Superman or whether it's this character. He's so good at letting the thing slip and letting you see the real guy that's underneath. And that's where he's, man, he's good at it. It's a great performance. People always, and it does feel to me like he, from the very beginning was adamant that he was going to play against how pretty he was because it's sick. How pretty he is. Christopher Reeve is one of those guys who is absurd, like just absurd when you look at him. And in this movie, he is so keenly aware of that physical part of himself and the impact it has on people around him and watching how he navigates and uses that in a room. Again, very impressive work. And then Michael Caine is just having the best time playing around that. Like you can see that he knows how good this performance is. And so great. Now I'm the other dancer and I get to throw all these moves at you and we get to see how it, it plays. And how great is Diane Cannon, man? I've always been hot and cold on her. Sometimes she, uh, for my taste, she's a little over the top and a little too brassy here. She's like a, a ray of light, a source of energy, funny. She's very knowing here. And she knows again, it's all about the other two actors in any of these scenes and what they're doing. And so she knows what her place is and what her part of that music is. And that's why it feels to me like a great stage production, because I feel like these actors on stage could have kept this thing up in the air. It's a blast. I, would this be your pick of the month? I think it's definitely mine. 
I think it's terrific. This or if you can find it, Mephisto, which I think is largely unknown by a lot of uh, modern film goers. But yes, this is a terrific film and it's easily rentable on uh, YouTube and Amazon and you can find it many, many places. That wraps up March of 1982. Drew? Uh, next month, we're going to watch a an amazing British gangster film. We're going to see one of the great coming-of-age films of the 80s. We're going to see Richard Pryor try something very different. We're going to see a horror film that isn't. We're going to see a great cult horror film that I, I think is still one of the great sleazy movies of all time and one of my favorite foreign films of the decade. So uh, with all that in mind, we'll see you back here in two weeks for April 1982. <laughs>